Tēnā koutou, no mai, hi to mai. Welcome to q and I'm Jack Tame. Today, as the government prepares to make a call on shifting alert levels, we ask an advisor to the World Health Organisation to analyse New Zealand's response to the latest COVID-19 outbreak. And the Kiwi living in a big city that never had to go into lockdown. What we can all learn from Taiwan. The, the culture needs to shift. I don't know, can some All Blacks wear some masks? There's plenty of celebrities in New Zealand. Could one of them step up? Dr Shane Reti is here with National's COVID plan and then later we meet a lifelong Republican campaigning for Joe Biden to be the next American president. The only way we're going to save the soul of the Republican Party and make America great again is to get Donald Trump out of office. We begin with COVID-19. The latest numbers from the Ministry of Health record six new cases in New Zealand. Four of those are related to the Auckland cluster. Two are being investigated, with a total of 111 active cases in New Zealand and three people in intensive care. But after previously going more than 100 days without community transmission, how does our latest outbreak position us? Professor Mary Louise McClaws from the University of New South Wales is an expert advisor to the World Health Organization in its COVID-19 response and she is with us this morning from Sydney. Kia ora, welcome to Q&A. Thank you very much for having me. Mary Louise, there has been a sense of frustration and anger in some parts in New Zealand at the latest outbreak and revelations that our Ministry of Health wasn't testing frontline staff who were interacting with people with COVID-19. What do you think of that response? I can understand that um, New Zealanders are frustrated having to go back into lockdown after such a wonderful uh, response uh, from the initial, uh, I guess you'd call it first wave, although what you're experiencing is a spike and not a second wave. Um, But you're still a poster country of the world. Um, You and uh, Taiwan have done uh, remarkably well. Um, The fact that uh, uh, there hasn't been any testing uh, in the quarantine hotels of the staff um, is a repeat of uh, what has happened in other countries, uh, particularly your neighbour in Australia. Uh, And often uh, departments of health are uh, busy running outbreaks and and running um, data analysis um, while uh, sometimes forgetting uh, the importance of testing, uh, which is Dr. Tedros, uh, the Director General of WHO, Mm. keeps reminding everybody, testing, 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 because without testing, you can't control. Um, And uh, it's so cost effective uh, for testing frontline healthcare workers, frontline carers, and uh, the very important people that uh, look after uh, those under quarantine who are returning from often countries with very high numbers of COVID. See, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, to, to be clear here, uh, some frontline staff have been tested, but what has become clear is that not all of those staff members who've been working in quarantine facilities have been tested over the last couple of months. Can you explain the comparison with Australia? Because you have had a similar instance in Australia. Yes, uh, look, we've had... Uh, it's. You know, as humans during this pandemic, uh, not many of us have had experiences with other pandemics, unlike, say, China uh, uh, and um, Hong Kong, for example, Vietnam and Canada even with SARS. Um, You learn uh, to go in early and go in very hard. And that's the mantra of epidemiologists. 
but we seem to have to be surprised not once but twice or even three times. So in Victoria, they've had outbreaks across two quarantine hotels, uh, large outbreaks, and that outbreak in the quarantine hotel has been genetically linked, uh, that genetic sequencing of the virus, to the second wave. And that second wave has been responsible for over 60 cases overall for the whole experience in Australia. And then uh, just yesterday and the day before, uh, Sydney also had its uh, its first and second case uh, in staff in quarantine hotels. So uh, there's not enough testing going on in those frontline workers. And they are very important workers. And don't forget... Hotels have never been built. They're not purpose-built mm. for return travellers. They sounded like a really good idea to begin with to get residents and uh, citizens back uh, and allow them to go overseas for very important family and other reasons and then to bring them back safely. However, with the large numbers coming back from very um, big hotspots mm. around the world, we've got to probably start thinking again about... Um, the exact built environment that these hotels do not provide uh, for the staff, such as airflow change, right. for example, such as you know lifts that are clean and designated as dirty for staff. Professor, would you recommend then that the New Zealand and Australian governments consider purpose-built quarantine facilities? Uh, yes, look, I, I, I sound like a broken record, but yes, we need to do uh, have a purpose-built one. I mean, China could get a, a, a purpose-built mm. um, a building for a hospital, and we need a purpose-built one run by experts in infection control, allowing people to um, still stay with their family if they've come back as a family unit mm. and still be able to roam around the grounds and it's safe for the staff. The source of the New Zealand cluster hasn't yet been identified. What do you make of that? Um, I, I, I find it very surprising. Um, I've looked at your line list, what epidemiologists call line list, just the list of cases from the beginning to, to now. Uh, there's a big gap, 102 days of absolutely no cases. Uh, that's why you're the poster country of the world. Uh, but then you started getting cases on the 11th of August. And I can only assume that um, there's, and of course there hasn't been um, any link to food or the food processing or the uh, um, receiving of um, items from overseas. not at all. So everyone can feel very confident that they can uh, handle packages quite safely. So the next thing really is, it hasn't been circulating in the community for 102 days without anyone knowing. You can't possibly have 102 days going with 100% of small numbers, all asymptomatic. That would be highly unusual. So the third possibility is, is that either people are failing to... um, Uh, divulge uh, to the contact traces or they have a lapse of memory about how they've acquired this. Normally, uh, common things happen commonly. The most obvious would be a human failing here to um, accommodate the rules. And we all need to realise that rules are really important Mm -hmm. in a pandemic and that people should feel very safe when they're asked 
the first and the second time and then the third time if they don't divulge um, then really there needs to be consequences because they're wasting a lot of time for um, the authorities and they're putting people's lives at risk. Right. I want to uh, put to you a comment from the head of the World Health Organization two days ago. We must all learn to control and manage this virus using the tools we have now. Lockdowns are not a long-term solution for any country. With that in mind, is elimination the right strategy for New Zealand? I think elimination is the correct strategy for New Zealand and Australia. Um, You have very few numbers. Uh, You got uh, what I would call elimination, very, very close to probably zero. You might have had uh, a few cases out there that were asymptomatic, but only a few. Uh, There's about 18, somewhere between 13 and 18 percent of cases will be asymptomatic, but not for a whole 102 Mm. days. Uh, And from a public health perspective, it's more cost effective as well. So if you can get over the, um, the, the, the sadness of the, of the lockdown for the next few days or next few weeks until you get this under control, you can then go back to life as normal with the understanding, as Dr. Tedros will tell you, is to uh, um, cooperate with those very, very easy public health uh, requirements. Keep your distance, uh, keep a mask on if you're in uh, a crowded space and test, do a lot of testing. Mm. All right, Professor Mary Louise McClaws from the University of New South Wales. Tēnākui, thank you for your time this morning. Now, just so you know, we have been trying for some time on Q&A to have an interview with Dr Ashley Bloomfield, the Director General of Health. We want to ask him some detailed questions about the border processes that have been in place and our strategy from this point forth. Once again this week, the Ministry of Health denied our request. From the beginning of this pandemic, Taiwan has led the way in controlling the spread of COVID-19 without having to lock down even once. So what can we learn from Taiwan? Here's reporter Fina Owen. a team of 23.8 million, 486 total COVID cases, seven deaths. Right now, around 29 currently infected and all looked after in hospital. What do you think we can learn from Taiwan's management of COVID? This is Bill Chen. He's Taiwan's representative in New Zealand. In a sense, we learn from each other. You see the report here, the leaders here, the uh, expert here, they notice that Taiwan is doing a good job. But for us, the same thing, New Zealand is doing a pretty decent job. Taiwan was very quick off the mark, suspecting something was up in Wuhan late last year. And despite not even having observer status, advised the WHO of their concerns. They decided to follow their own course. They sent experts to Wuhan and screened all arrivals from there. Your experts went to Wuhan and came back and and said, this could be big. Oh, not only you are right, totally right. So they arrived on 12 and they come back to Taiwan on the 15. And on 16, we sent out the first alert uh, to the public. 
Wellingtonian expat Ron Hansen was one of those who received the alert. He lives in Taichung City and works as a magazine editor. He was there when SARS hit Taiwan hard in 2003. He was expecting the worst when COVID hit. So everyone was very, very tense. We're kind of just waiting for it to hit. And um, and then it was just kind of bizarre because it sort of started happening everywhere else except for Taiwan. It was just like dodging a hail of bullets. The SARS experience had given Taiwan an advantage. So out of the SARS, I think our government will restructure a lot of things in order to be prepared for any kind of pandemic. So the epidemic infrastructure was already there, an agency set up called the Central Epidemic Command Centre. They've kept infection levels low without lockdown, schools open, workplaces humming, but temperatures checked and plenty of PEP. We are lucky we don't experience lockdown. I think the face mask, to me personally, play a pretty, probably, important role that without a lockdown, we could still able, in a sense, to contain the virus as what we are today. Face masks are issued to Taiwanese via their national health insurance cards. It's compulsory to wear them on public transport, but voluntary everywhere else. Most people wear them. Ron Hansen says he's frustrated that masks haven't been so readily promoted in New Zealand. He'd like to see Jacinda Ardern leading the way. She's smart, so if she's wearing a mask, would would come across as the smart thing to do. The, the culture needs to shift. I don't know, can some All Blacks wear some masks? There's plenty of celebrities in New Zealand. Could one of them step up? I want to see New Zealand learn from Taiwan because there are obviously um, still some thing, areas that need to be improved upon. Um, so, And I think that the model is just sitting right here. So apart from the mask wearing, what is the model? Ron Hansen has taken images of these measures in action. Just getting a temperature check. I mean, I get my temperature checked about four or five times a day, right? So it's just part of life. You know, if I go into a store, it's just like the social distancing. It's just like we've just gone into a different gear. You know, the quarantine is obviously really, really important. So arrivals into Taiwan are screened and their phones are set up for tracking. They go into quarantine at an approved facility or at home. A government official phones in twice a day. If they breach the quarantine, they can be fined up to $45,000. When you consider how much damage can be done to a country when this virus gets out just from one person, to me it seems you know, heavy fines are, are justifiable. And there are some breaches. Certainly the society is never perfect. There are always something happen. I mean, the trust is the key word. I think people in between us, I need to trust the people around me, my colleague, in fighting this disease. And people, general term, have to trust the system or trust the government or trust the expert. I think without this, you know, everybody's pointing finger at everybody. Legislation has allowed Taiwan to employ digital tracking and big data via personal cell phones and health cards. Taiwan hasn't tested for COVID as extensively as New Zealand. Ron insists that's due to its emphasis on prevention and a world-renowned health system where a visit to the doctor is $10. The thing is, is that Taiwan is not part of the WHO, right? It did sort of 
bring people together. We're kind of these outsiders. Bill Chen isn't keen to discuss the WHO. Taiwan, he says, is focusing on sharing vital health information with the world and PPE supplies with countries that need them. So you don't think it should be politicised because it's about human no. health? No, no. You know, the government, not only here in New Zealand, back home in Taiwan, you know, around the globe, every government, what can they do? They do the best to contain this disease, to protect people's health, the well-being, and this is the priority. What else? Fina Owen with that report. If you're wondering why Taiwan isn't a member of the World Health Organization, it's because of its complex relationship with China. China sees Taiwan as a breakaway province, while Taiwan sees itself as an independent state, even though it isn't afforded that status by some world bodies, including the World Health Organization and the United Nations. I will ask Nationals Health spokesperson Dr Shane Reti what National would better manage the COVID crisis next. And coming up, the sentencing hearing for the Christchurch mosque shooter will begin tomorrow. Will he be the first person in New Zealand to be sentenced to life without parole? Kia ora te whana. welcome back to Q&A. National wants to establish an overarching border protection agency to improve testing and quarantining process of, processes for people arriving back in New Zealand. If in government, the party would also require all people coming into New Zealand to test negative for COVID-19 within three days of flying in. Dr Shane Reti is National's health spokesperson and he is with us now live. Tēnā koe, welcome to Q&A. Uh, I want to just begin this morning with the comments from WHO advisor Dr Mary Louise McClaws. She just told us that despite errors with testing in New Zealand, New Zealand is still the poster child for the COVID-19 response. Do you agree? Yeah, I think we should be pleased with that. I think our response has been good. Uh, clearly, there are some things that we can improve, as we've heard during the past week. But I think we should be very pleased with that uh, assessment from an international expert. She recommended that both the New Zealand and Australian governments consider purpose-built quarantining facilities. Would you uh, endorse that suggestion? Well, we'd certainly be prepared to explore it. That's a, it's, it's not a new concept, but it's something we'd certainly explore and it might well fit under the remit of the Border Protection Agency. Let's consider Te Kora Wai Whakamaru, the Border Protection Agency. Mm. Where will your staff come from for the, for the new agency? So the uh, Border Protection Agency, the purpose is to be a much more focused line of accountability and reporting mm. and to have that responsibility to coordinate the all-of-government approach and to flex up and flex down depending on what pandemic incursion uh, we have. The staff for that, they'll always be a bit like civil defence. There'll always be a permanent uh, crew, a permanent team, uh, working in the Border Protection Agency and then as we need to flex up we envisage we would draw staff in from maybe the military and from academic institutions but this will be part of the task of the Border Protection Agency to do workforce development. Just how insidious is this virus? Is the virus? Yeah. Oh it's nasty. It's yeah. nasty and it's tricky. It seems to mutate quickly. You know we're still figuring out um, how long does it live on a surface, a, a fomite. Uh, there's a lot we're still learning. I mean, if we look at the antibody response, for example, uh, the finger prick that might give us a rapid response, we're still trying to understand the antibody response for what now, six, seven, eight months? Yeah. It's really challenging. With that in mind, why do you think it's a prudent idea to set up a whole new agency, a, a new department in the midst of a crisis? 
So the, the reporting and accountability has been described as a spider web. Mm. And we think this is where some of the issues have arisen. Uh, one department thinking they've got responsibility, another department thinking they haven't. Somewhere you need to make a start and say, one minister responsible, clear line of reporting, and now is as good a time but as any to start. There might be a prudent suggestion, though, after, after the immediate crisis is over, you know, at a time when we're not actually in the middle of responding to a pandemic. Mm. Is it not a recipe for confusion to try and establish a whole new bureaucracy partway through this response? No, I think, I think we do need to make a start now. I mean, if we look at other jurisdictions, the UK, for example, they're starting in the middle of an even greater crisis than we have. So I, I think we just need to make a start. And we've said if we're privileged to be government, we'd actually roll it out in the first 100 days. Let's consider um, what that new agency um, would be doing and some of the other elements of your of your COVID response policy. You say you want more targeted lockdowns. So, so in, the, in the case of the Auckland cluster at the moment, how would you establish a more targeted lockdown? So, you know, some have called this a postcode lockdown, if you like, and it was just not clear to us that the very wide swath of Auckland that was taken out, for example, all the way down to Pocono, uh, that that stands up to the evidence that maybe we've just matched a response to what was a council boundary mm. rather than to areas that we could really work with. For example, could we move that Pocono boundary further north past Waiuku, maybe past the heavy in industry at Glenbrook Steel, etc., and still be effective? So we're looking for a more sophisticated targeting rather than, than maybe what we have. So just to be clear, if you were the health minister right now, you would that, particularly that southern boundary in Auckland, you would be looking to move that? We, we would be looking to explore if we could safely advance that. You've said you would make contact tracing compulsory for frontline border staff and people who've just arrived home. So what mm. technology would you use? Mm. So we have the COVID app and we're strongly supportive of people using the COVID app as much mm. as they can. We'd like to add Bluetooth technology in whatever form it may be, be it in the form of the COVID card, which would seem to be the, the first on the runway. But we think Bluetooth technology is another tool that we can and should add to that toolbox. When did you download the COVID app? Uh, about four weeks ago, I think, because I had another app that was running before then. Right, OK. And, and have, you, have you found it easy to use? Have you been using it all the time? Actually, to be frank, I have found it easy to use. And yes, I do use it every time, actually. Mm. So, so, so you, would, you would introduce a new form of contact tracing in addition to the COVID app? Yes, we'd introduce Bluetooth technology, which is more a proximity diary, a different set of information, a different way of getting contact tracing, different to what the COVID app currently does. You don't, you don't know exactly what that would be at this stage? No, we're, we're looking at what um, uh, Ireland's doing, for example, in Spain, where they're using the smartphone Bluetooth technology. But what I do know is we need to make it easy for people. We need to make it so there's less for them to do, less for others to do, and, and that then will give us a good pick-up rate. So to be clear, would that be compulsory for, for those frontline staff and people who are arriving back? Yes, it would be. Right. You would, you would compel them to use the Bluetooth technology on their cell phones? Uh, or, or if they were wearing it like a COVID card. But yes, we would, we would compulse a Bluetooth technology if that was an established contact tracing mechanism. Is it an option to reopen the border before a vaccine becomes available? Mm, two things there. How long is it going to take for a vaccine to be available? I've called it a horizon of hope because we're surely wanting that to happen. If we look at those that are first off the mark, for example, the Oxford study, mm. uh, what we're seeing there is some good progress going into phase three, although interestingly they've only tested people up to the age of 50, and of course our most vulnerable group are the 60, 65 and over. Furthermore, it looked like the immunity was only for about 56 days, so there's a lot 
lot of work still to be done there. So ever hopeful, desperately wanting a vaccine, but we, we have the tools that we have here now, actually. OK, so, so to be clear then, are you prepared to open the border before we have a oh. vaccine available? Uh, the criteria for opening the border is predicated solely on safety. And if vaccine adds to that equation that helps us decide the safety of the border, mm. then that would be a good thing. But it's a safety metric first. Just going back to June 29th, and I appreciate you weren't National's health spokesperson at that stage, the, the then leader of your party, Todd Muller, said waiting for a vaccine or for other countries to eliminate COVID-19 before the border reopens would leave New Zealand, quote, on its knees. Do you think that was the wrong approach? I think what he's indicating there is that we should be partners of those who are developing vaccines. Now, I think there's two things here. I am aware of local people who, by all accounts, are doing some really interesting work uh, developing a local vaccine. That's really encouraging. We should see where that could go. Mm. But the, the production and the manufacturing that's required, our reality is we will probably need to partner with a cousin, maybe like with Australia I think, or something like that. I don't know. Perhaps we're interpreting his comments differently. But I think what he is suggesting there is that is that an elimination strategy is not the sort of strategy that we can sustain for a long period from an economic perspective. So I'm aware of that of that discussion and where our position here at the moment is that we are completely supportive of an elimination strategy. Of course, as we learn more, like other countries will over time, mm. we'll also reach that, that decision of balancing elimination, suppression, control, eradication. We'll have that discussion as well. So, so do you think that the, the National could fairly be accused of having perhaps shifted a little bit over the last few months in terms of in terms of its approach to elimination strategy some would say that there's not a lot of cohesion in your in your different leaders comments Mm. I think every country, as we've had either second waves, we've all had to relook and say, gosh, this is a second, uh, second episode for us. The implications are now quite severe, and this may be a tale that goes out this for a lot longer. This was always a risk, longer. wasn't it? Well, it, it may go out for a lot mm. longer than we we're anticipating, and so we're all needing to review what our initial positions are, but we are supportive of an elimination strategy here today. Uh, is there anywhere on earth you think has, has done a better job than New Zealand? Oh, I think Taiwan, as you, you said, with the lady in front, uh, you know, speaking before us, I think they have done a good job. I think there's pockets of good jobs uh, around the world, um, and I think we can learn from them. I think they can learn from us too. Mm. You've been asked on, on multiple occasions what experts you consulted mm. in developing your policy, and you've declined to, to say any. I just want mm. to be clear, though, this morning. Did you consult epidemiologists? Yes, we have, both onshore and offshore. And uh, as I say, I'll maintain their, their, their privacy with me because we'd like to work with them ongoing. Mm. And some of them have relationships with governments and they may not want to compromise that. But I think what's most important is getting sunlight on the policy. Mm. So we've had the policy development, but here it is now for scrutiny, for you to, to critique, for New Zealanders to look at and say, yes, mm. we, we think that makes sense. And we're, we're really pleased with the response we've had to that. That's really the most important. What does it look like in your hands here today? If you were uh, in a cabinet meeting tomorrow deciding on alert levels, would you be looking to shift alert levels this week? First thing I'd be doing is uh, thanking New Zealanders for um, uh, giving us the privilege to be government. And then the second thing I'd be doing uh, would be looking at all the data, having all the data around us, and we would consider whether we could of move Of course tomorrow. you would, but from the data you have and the information you have available, six new cases yesterday, four linked to the cluster, two being investigated. Would Auckland be moving out of lockdown? Would the rest <laughs> of New Zealand be moving to level one? I don't have all the data, Jack, and I won't be drawn to a decision without all the data. Dr Shane Vitti, thanks for your time. My pleasure, thank you.
Tell us what you think of Nationals plan. We're on Twitter at NZQ&A. You can post on Facebook or email us, Q&A at tvnz.co.nz. We'll bring in our panel after the break. The government is scrambling to shore up its testing and border management. How much voter support has it lost? That's next. Hoki Mayanor, welcome back to Q&A. We'll bring in our panel now. Laila Hare, unionist and former MP, joins us in Tamaki, Makoto, Auckland. And Liam here is a lawyer and National Party member in our studio in Palmerston North. Kia ora kōrua. Laila, I will begin with you this morning. Many New Zealanders have been frustrated by the events of the last couple of weeks, not only being in lockdown, but revelations that uh, the Ministry of Health hadn't been testing all frontline border staff. Do you think that is... Um, do you think it's the balls up that it has been made out to be? Uh, I don't think anyone could credibly say it's it's been the balls up that it's been made out to be by Judith Collins, by a number of sort of hysterical um, commentators uh, that we've become more and more familiar with in their ever-changing positions and recommendations. Um, I totally get the frustration or even anger that people might feel in discovering that a cabinet decision had not been implemented um, by the Ministry of Health. And I mean, thankfully that's now been addressed and thankfully there is now greater scrutiny of implementation by the Ministry of Health. Mm. But I also think people expect there to be problems um, and while they might be angry or frustrated at a particular incident, my gut feeling is that this does not translate into concern with the government's overall mm. management, I'll, I'll, um, I'll, either I'll, of the, the pandemic or of the response this yeah, week. I'm interested to get your, your thoughts on the political fallout from all of this, but Liam, do you agree? How significant is this oversight not having tested frontline border staff? Uh, well, it is pretty significant. I mean, I think, uh, you know, the, the Labour Party view is that, um, you know, it's concerned that even the Labour Party people are quite keen to blame the public servants and they're certainly doing that quite furiously uh, behind the scenes. Um, but the, um, the ongoing revelations of, uh, of things that are just common sense precautions are not being done. Um, is, is, is certainly concerning and it didn't, didn't, didn't take a lot of foresight to know that we should be testing people working at the border quite regularly. Um, you know, it was all the expert advice. And um, there was a very good piece I read in the, uh, in, in the Sunday Star Times this morning by Andrea Vance that just set out in a lot of detail why it's just not credible uh, for the government to, uh, to hide behind Ashley Bloomfield and to throw him under the bus and to blame the officials. So look, I think that um, you know, people are concerned about the, um, about the botch-ups uh, quite reasonably. Uh, they're also a bit frustrated about, the, about being misled in public about it. How damaging has this been for the government, do you think, Lila? Um, oh, well, I think they've had a, a rough week because they've been dealing with a, you know, a lot of complex issues, not least of all when to hold the election um, and how to kind of respond on a day-to-day -day basis to the current cluster. Um, and, you know, with this sort of hysteria coming from, from all quarters, um, you know, anti-government quarters, let's be clear about that. It's not hysteria. Um, it's not hysteria. So I, I mean, there's some really, reasonable I, criticism, Lila, but hysteria is oh, probably a bit too much, isn't it? 
there has been there has been some reasonable criticism and some of that has come from the government itself mm. there has also been an extraordinary amount of unreasonable criticism and i don't think you know i'm the only one in my bubble which is you know reasonably large that has felt really quite anxious about the level of kind of escalation of the rhetoric around that and we expect that to some extent in an election campaign. I have to say it's very refreshing to hear Dr Shane Retty sort of toning it down, mm. um, but it is very much at odds with the message that has been coming from the leadership of the National Party. Yeah, I mean, Liam, clearly National and the opposition party see this as an opportunity to criticise the government and its COVID-19 response, but how damaging do you think this has been for the government? Well, I mean, most of the um, the so-called anti-government forces out there that have been criticising the government have, in fact, been the media. And I'd suggest that it's actually quite dangerous to go down the Trumpian line of um, of calling that hysteria when actually it's just really good investigative reporting that reveals things that we need to know. Now, I think that the, the confidence in the government will be shaken by this, but I don't think that's going to translate to uh, to, to, to many lost votes. Mm. And the reason is, is that voters are sensible. Voters know that they make, they're choosing between alternative governments. And at the moment, I think that the nature of the stuff-ups that have been happening are the type of things that voters are going to attribute to problems with politics and politicians. They're not going to say it's a particular Labour problem. So, look, I think that, you know, there, there will be some loss of confidence, but I don't think that's going to translate to a great loss of votes for the government, uh, simply because people understand that this is how things work. They probably don't... Um, National probably hasn't made the case that they'd be doing it a lot better. Do you think it, it speaks to the talent problem that the government has been criticised for having, Liam, that, that the Prime Minister is essentially loaded up with a small group of ministers, some of whom have some very big portfolios. Of course, the Minister of Health is also the Minister of Education at the moment, for example. Yeah, so being in the coalition government, right from the start, they had to load up a, a number of the spaces to New Zealand First um, uh, uh, ministers, who are really nowhere to be seen on this. And then below that, you've got the Prime Minister, who's extremely uh, popular, um, but, you know, not, not, you know, probably involved um, in, in, in a meaty um, sort of uh, departments, as Prime mm. Ministers normally aren't. And then Chris Hipkins is a safe pair of hands, but look how much has he got on his plate now. And so, you know, when, when you think about everything Chris Hipkins does, and he's saying, well, I've got the, my, you know, my eye on the on the numbers every day as they come in, you think, wow, um, you know, that's a lot for one person to do, and there are only so many hours in the day. Lila, what do you make of National's COVID-19 border strategy? I think that, um, that a party that kind of believed that it was being going into government or, or had a reasonable chance of going into government um, wouldn't have been behaving the way they have been over the last couple of weeks. And again, um, I do think it's significant that Shane Retty is tempering a lot of the rhetoric from um, not just the the National Party but ACT as well um, and that's you know that's a positive thing and it's really necessary for the public health response to this I mean we just heard a piece on Taiwan the reason that the level of compliance and cooperation in Taiwan has allowed 
uh, people to go about normal life, more or less, from everything mm. I've read, has a huge amount to do um, with the kind of, well, A, the previous experience, and we're now acquiring previous experience, but also the absolute focus of the whole body politic on the challenge we collectively face. Mm. And, um, you know, what you've seen is efforts to undermine that kind of confidence, that trust in the body politic. And, you know, just to counter Liam, I'm not talking about, you know, working reporters who are asking constructive questions and gaining the information we need to understand yeah. how our response is actually working in practice. But we, we have you're talking about Matthew who Hooten. I know exactly who you're talking about. Media who aren't that constructive. <laughs> you're talking about Matthew Hooten. Um, uh, Liam, um, what do you make of National? Actually, I wasn't talking about Matthew Hooten because we know Matthew is a, a kind of operative, a commentator. He's 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 got a role. But you know, we have very influential yeah. people. Mike okay. Hosking. Kate Hawkesby, um, Heather Duplessy Allen. It's okay, and, okay. and it's very difficult for some of us to kind of reconcile their approach with a with okay. a team approach. Liam, let me ask you what you think of, of National's plan. Is there some concern about establishing a new agency in the midst of a crisis, knowing that one little mistake can be enough to let this virus back in? Yeah, well that's always gonna be something that's hard to do. I mean, but then you know, it's not like the UK held off establishing the RAF in, in World War I when it became clear that that was necessary. And so, you know, given how open-ended this crisis is, if you're going to wait till the end of the uh, crisis to start to implement something that the National Party considers to be necessary, uh, then you're going to miss out on all the benefits of having it. Now, it, it is a, it's, it's a real risk, as you point out. Um, and, uh, and, you know, it has to be implemented well if it's done properly. Um, but, you know, we've taken a number of risks in this country uh, already uh, in terms of COVID. We've, you know, on the, on the whole, on the substance, we've implemented them well because on the whole, we have a very good public service and a very good culture of public service. And so, look, I think that um, if, the, if the crisis is as open-ended as, as people say it might be, I think that, you know, we, sh we shouldn't wait until the end of the crisis before implementing those types of changes if they're considered necessary. All right. Thanks for your time this morning, guys. We really appreciate it. Liam here and Lala Hare. After the break on Q&A, the Christchurch Mosque gunman will represent himself in court this week as he's sentenced. Can the judge stop him from using the hearing as a platform for his views? That's next. Hoki Mayanor, welcome back to Q&A. The Christchurch High Court is preparing for an extraordinary hearing tomorrow as the man who murdered 51 people in the Christchurch mosque attacks is sentenced for his crime. Brenton Tarrant could become the first person in New Zealand sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. But the presiding judge, Justice Cameron Mander, faces numerous challenges as dozens of victims and survivors present impact statements and Tarrant himself is given the opportunity to address the court. Nigel Hampton QC is with us this morning from Autotahi Christchurch. Morena. Good morning. Could you just start by explaining to us how a sentence of uh, life imprisonment and how minimum parole works in the New Zealand justice system? Sure. Can I start with one uh, principle that's in the early part of our Sentencing Act, and that is that um, a judge um, must apply the maximum 
penalty applicable to a particular offence if the judge considers that the particular crime or crimes fall within the most serious of crimes that can be committed in that range, unless there are exceptional, unless the circumstances of the offender dictate otherwise. So we start with that premise, then turn to murder. The maximum penalty that could be given uh, for murder in New Zealand is life imprisonment without any right to apply for parole. Uh, life imprisonment for the term of your natural life, in effect. It's never been imposed in New Zealand. Ordinarily, life imprisonment has a minimum a period of uh, non-parole attached to it, so that after a term of 10 years, 17 years, 23 years, whatever, a person is uh, able to apply for parole. It won't necessarily be given. Mm. In this instance, we're looking at whether a judge should go further than that, and a judge can go further than that. It's in the judge's discretion. If the judge thinks that a life imprisonment term with the right to apply for parole would be inappropriate, having regard to any one of four factors, whether that life imprisonment with the right to apply for parole would not sufficiently um, uh, hold the offender accountable for the harm done, not just to the victims, but mm. to society generally. Secondly, whether life sentence with the right to apply for parole would not sufficiently denounce what's been done. Uh, thirdly, life sentence with the right to apply for parole would not be seen to deter not just the offender but others mm. of a like mind. And fourthly, if the judge were to consider uh, that a life imprisonment with the right to apply for parole um, would not sufficiently protect the community. Right. So if any one of those four factors are present in the judge's mind uh, this coming week, he, in his discretion, can say, sorry, but no, you're serving life imprisonment without the right to apply for parole. With all of that in mind, then, and considering the gravity of this crime, what do you think is likely to happen? Well, the judge is going to look at, um, given those principles that I've just uh, explained, the judge is going to look at the number of crimes that were committed, mm. not only just the murders, but the, uh, the, the attempted murders as well, and the Terrorism Act. Um, one of the aggravating features that a judge has to look at is the, uh, the seriousness of the crimes themselves, the, not just the quality of them, but the quantity of them as well. And, if, and an added factor in that, if those crimes were committed as part of the engagement in an act of terrorism. Mm. So that's a highly aggravating factor that comes into play here. Um, what can mitigate against it? The judge will have to consider the fact that uh, Tarrant pleaded guilty. He's entitled to some credit for that. That's a difficult balancing exercise. You've got to weigh up when that guilty plea came, could it have come earlier, and those right. sorts of things. Was there an inevitability about it in any event? You've got to then uh, have regard to uh, the, the, uh, whether there is some uh, psychological or psychiatric explanation mm. that might be seen to uh, 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 have some effect on the, uh, uh, the defendant's responsibility. So those sort of factors come in. And uh, thirdly, of those mitigating, possible mitigating factors, whether there has been any expression of remorse mm. and the judge's assessment of that as to whether that is a genuine expression of remorse or not. So 
a judge has got a very difficult task yeah. balancing all those things and coming to the conclusion. But I think, uh, given the extent of the offending here and the aggravating features that life imprisonment for the term of the natural life, life imprisonment without the right to apply for parole, is the likely upshot. Brenton Tarrant will be representing himself in court. How does that affect the process? Theoretically, it doesn't. Um, it'll go through... Uh, it, it's a very prescriptive mm. process, sentencing. Um, the, the, the Crown will start, will outline, will read mm. its summary of facts as to what it says happened uh, in terms of these... Uh, so, sorry to interrupt you. Because he's been charged with terrorism, though, is there a possibility that he will have a platform he might not otherwise have had simply on murder charges? Um, I think that the terrorism charge gives, uh, expands the boundaries a little as to what he can talk about. He's entitled to talk at the end of Crown victims, then it's his turn. He's entitled to talk about his position and indeed subject to constraints of, uh, of, of public decency, as it were, mm. uh, he's able to talk about what motivated him to act in the way he did. And as he faces and has pleaded guilty to a, res to, to a terrorism charge, he'd be entitled to talk as to what actuated him in right. regards to that. That must be difficult for, for the judge, for Justice Mander, to, to, to balance not necessarily wanting to give Tarrant a platform for his views. Terribly difficult. I mean, yeah. sentencing generally, you talk to any judges, they say it's one of the most difficult things they do. This is compounded in this, this sort of case. Mm. And, and that is why there's in place here a, a, a procedure that's not usually in place, and that is the restriction of any publication, a delayed publication of things, so that if anything beyond the bounds of, of propriety and decency is said, the judge can say, no, that can't be mm. published to the wider world. Mm. I want to talk about the victims and the people who have been most affected by this, who, uh, many of whom will be addressing the court with victim impact statements. Those are likely, of course, to be extremely emotional. Are, are there limits on what those people can say? The, 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 there's a theoretical framework of, of what should uh, what, what a victim impact statement should cover. Mm. But there's a fair degree of licence allowed that as well. But again, a judge has got to be very careful how he deals with that. Uh, one can imagine the heightened atmosphere, the emotion, heightened emotional atmosphere within that court, particularly as victim after victim or family after family give statements. That temperature, the emotional temperature in that courtroom is going to rise considerably mm. and uh, the judge will have to deal with that and keep that under control um, and, and don't allow victims and families' expectations to rise too high right. that they can somehow look this mm. person in the eye and some, somehow find some resolution for matters there. Mm. That's a bit... Uh, uh, unrealistic with the greatest of respect. Okay. Nigel Hampton QC, Tina Koi, thank you very much for your time and insights. After the break on Q&A. The most powerful office in the world needs more than a weak, unfit, shaky president. Dissident Republicans are ramping up the attack ads against Donald Trump. But will these commercials actually change anyone's mind?
Tēnā koutou, welcome back. The Democrats launched their bid for the White House officially this week by endorsing Joe Biden and Kamala Harris to take on Donald Trump and Mike Pence in the November election. The convention was notable for a couple of reasons. First, it was online because of the COVID-19 crisis. But second, were the endorsements from a number of high-ranking Republicans, including former Ohio Governor John Kasich. I'm a lifelong Republican, but that attachment holds second place to my responsibility to my country. That's why I've chosen to appear at this convention. In normal times, something like this would probably never happen. But these are not normal times. Of course, attack ads are nothing new in American politics, but one of the myriad interesting facets in this year's campaign is the number of ads made by staunch Republicans who are pledging to vote against their own party's president. The reviews are in. You have to go by where we look. Here's what Trump's own people are saying about him. He's a f***ing moron. Rex Tillerson, Trump's Secretary of State. We're lower than the world. Lower than the world. He tries to divide us. James Mattis, Trump's Secretary of Defense. You had a group on one side and you had a group on the other. Very fine people on both sides. One lifelong Republican who's planning to vote for the Democrats' candidate in November is lawyer and former Marine Ron Filipkowski. He's so Republican, he named his first son Ronald Reagan Filipkowski. He's now a member of a group called Republicans Against Trump. He joins us this morning live from Sarasota, Florida. Thank you for being with us on Q&A. Can you perhaps start off, Ron, by just giving us your Republican credentials? Have you always been a Republican? Always, my whole life. I've never voted for a Democrat in any race, local races, national races, never in my life. I'm not going to vote for any Democrat in any other race this year, except one president. What did you think when Donald Trump first came on the political scene? I thought he was a con man and a fraud. I mean, I think if you look at his entire life, he's never really been a conservative or been a Republican. He's contributed before 2016 more money to Democrats in his life than Republicans. He contributed to Kamala Harris. He contributed to Hillary Clinton. Um, so what he did was in 2016, he created, in my opinion, a cartoon character of a conservative, figured out the key points that appeal to conservatives and turned himself into like a reality show contestant into that character. And it's just a, been a complete disaster. Why have so many conservatives supported him then? Well, I think a lot of them are afraid, especially the elected officials, because what happened was right after he was elected, and it quickly became pretty obvious to a lot of officials around the country that he was a fraud, a lot of them began to speak out against him. And what he did is he so-called primaried them. He endorsed opponents to run against them within the party. Many of them were defeated. Hmm. And so after 2018, a lot of Republicans now around the country are afraid to speak out against him because they know that they'll be targeted by him. It's happened hundreds of times all over the country. So what did you do for the 2016 election? How did you vote? I voted none of the above. I mean, I just couldn't bring myself to vote for Hillary Clinton, who I have been against, you know, for 20 years, and her husband. And so I just couldn't do it. So I just abstained and voted none of the above. But really, and I was going to do that again this year. But what really pushed me over the edge was how Trump handled the, the pandemic. Uh, yeah, what is it about his COVID-19 response that has pushed you over the edge? Well, you know, I, I, when it first happened, I thought, well, you know, this is going to bail him out, really, because mm. 
if he handles this well and does a good job and listens to the experts, and we have great experts in this country, everything, he's going to win re-election. But he did the opposite. He just, he completely screwed everything up. In this country, we never had a lockdown, a true lockdown, like you did. Um, what, during our lockdown months, which were only two, March and April, over 50% of Americans were still going to work, business as usual, because mm. they were considered essential workers, like liquor stores, for example, remained open because they were considered essential. Yeah, I guess they are to a lot of people, but we, we never had a true lockdown. It was very short, and then the president decided in late April that it was more important to get the economy back up and running because that was a greater threat to his reelection than COVID deaths. And so we threw everything back open before the pandemic was solved. We, we continued to allow people to travel freely between states all throughout the country, even mm. during the so-called lockdown. So that's why we have the mess that we're in. I mean, just for a bit of background here, Ron, you have always voted Republican up until 2016. You didn't vote for either Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump in that election but you have maintained close friendships with many other Republicans. You're the former president of a large Republican club in Florida. So how has speaking out now affected your personal relationships? Wow. Well, first of all, I'm appointed by the Florida governor to a committee that selects judges here. I'm, I'm serving my, my second term. I'm supposed to be chairman of that committee next year. I know and I knew when I did this. I have no chance whatsoever of staying on that committee. I mean, I, when my term is expired, I'm done. So, uh, and I've served on there for 10 years. So I know I've given that up. Um, I just had to stop going to different Republican events because what disheartened me, and I never saw this with any other Republican president or elected official, is the rabidness of the Trump supporters. It really, isn't like political support. It is more like a, a political cult. Mm. The way that they worship him, they don't tolerate dissent. You can't say anything negative about them. They'll shout you down. Um, I just walked by on Main Street here in Sarasota, a Trump store that today for the first time, I'd never seen this before. It's an entire store of Trump merchandise for sale, hats, t-shirts. It, it's, it's crazy and it, it's really like a cult. What do you think is the future of your party post-Trump, whether that's for an inauguration of a new president in January of next year or indeed in four years' time? Wow, that's something that a lot of us are talking about right now, which is assuming Trump loses, assuming Trump wins, I, can, I don't even want to think about that, but assuming he loses, what next? Um, are we going to go back to rebuilding the party that we used to be, or are we going to spawn many Trumps, and there's plenty of them out there, who want to inherit the Trump mantle and be grow up to be just like him. So um, it, it's really scary to me. I, I never thought that so many Republicans would support somebody like him. The fact that they have causes me to question the party myself that I've belonged to my whole life. And like, if, if, if this is what we believe in, do I really want to be part of it? How's it going to feel then when you tick the box next to Joe Biden's name in November? I'll probably break out in hives. Um, I, I may have a, an allergic reaction, uh, but I'll take some Benadryl going in. Now, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if a lightning bolt is going to hit me, uh, but uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to definitely be strange.
Forget the Benadryl, maybe you could take the hydrochloroquine or whatever it's called. <laughs> hey, Ron, we really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for being with us on Q&A. Thank you. Kua mutu, that is Q&A for this week. Thanks for watching. And nā mihi ki a koutou i a koutou pānui. Thanks for your contributions. Thanks to the Q&A team. Hey, tērā wiki, we will see you next Sunday morning at 9 o'clock. Q&A is made with the support of New Zealand On Air.